This heart holds many. My life as the non-binary millennial child. Child. Oh, I left that out. Okay, let's just write that in there. <laughs> She's literally. Yeah, I that. have to. Yeah. I'm here in my living room, and this is Koei Creation, and she's got a new book coming out. Co-creation. Oh, co- not Koei. Right. Of course. Co-creation and they/them pronouns. Oh. Let me write that. Co-creation. They. Yeah. Okay, I'm doing it. Heck yeah. <laughs> this. <laughs> Okay. is sex. Everyone gets what they want. This is sexploration. Explore. Play. This is sexploration with Monica. Sex is proof that God loves us and wants us to have fun. Sexploration with Monica at sexplorationwithmonica.com. So, I am here with co-creation in my living room. She's got a new book. Oh, they have a new book coming up. I'm going to just get used to it, yeah, hopefully, it eventually. Well, you have to work it out with the whole culture, and you're an educator, and I know that that's what you're here for, and thank God, you know, because it's really, it's hard for people's brains to, like, work it out. You're so pretty, and and you're a they, and I'm going to get it right. Okay, so your book is called This Heart Holds Many, My Life as the Non-Binary Millennial Child of a polyamorous family. Thank you so much. Yeah, you did a great job with the subtitle. Hi, my name is Ko. I do use they, them pronouns, and I am so excited to be here with you to talk about being second generation polyamorous and sex positive. Well, I've just never actually met anyone who, I mean, their parents, but their actual grandparents. Yes, nobody tends to ask about that portion of it, but one of my moms, I have three, is also the child of polyamorous folks very much involved in the Summer of Love movement. We grew up in the Seattle Pacific Northwest area. So through poly relations, yes, I am. The people who published your book, who is it? It's being published through Thorn Tree Press. Those are the folks who did more than two. I'm very excited to be working with them as a niche sex positive polyamorous publishing house. And they contacted me because they heard about my story and thought it would be a really great opportunity to get it out there. This is the first book of its kind from a child's perspective growing up in a polyamorous family. I definitely wrote it to answer the question, uh, so what was it like growing up in a poly family? What was it like growing up in a poly family? <laughs> I mean, because my parents were so pair-bonded, heteronormative. Which is also great. My parents practiced something called extended networking, or we called it tribe building. So I do know my bio parents, and they are very connected to each other. But as I said, there were five individuals who all chose to co-parent and bond together. What's interesting is that it's not all romantic connections. My mother's best friend married her brother. So one of these women I consider my mom is also legally my aunt. So even I get confused sometimes. And that's why I really focus on like who my parents were and how they affected my life. So I have a huge network of aunties and uncles and tribe members and, you know, my parents as partners and extended poly groups. But that was my unit right. that I got to focus on. And there were moments that felt really normal to me, you know, like 
my mom and I getting ready for school every day. And there were other moments that felt I knew there was something special. I knew that we were doing something amazing. You know, like the moment when I describe it in the book, we're sitting across from my very confused teacher at a PTA meeting who's trying to figure out how who all these people who are. are you? Who do I put on the emergency contact list? Right. It's so and real. There should be two, but <laughs> there is more. Right. Yes. And having to explain why it's important that these people have access, bureaucratic access and social access to this child's life. And then also navigating for myself you know what it was like to have multiple people to tell me that I had to do the dishes or get my chores done or I have to remember to like now as an adult okay cool well I called Angie but how long has it been since I called Susan I have five different parents I have five different Mm -hmm. relationships Mm -hmm. and it is a rich and complex thing (laughs) but I found a lot of value in it so we're gonna have to back up a little bit for people who hear your mother married her brother someone's brother because that sounds a little incestuous but i'm sure it didn't happen that way so please explain let me break down so my biological parents are angie and gary angie has a biological brother jim who's my uncle right jim married a woman named jean now jean has been angie's best friend since their mid-20s so eventually Jean married Jim and became my biological aunt. Okay. So she's your aunt and she's also the married partner of someone that is also related to you. Is that right? So she's my legal aunt. So they were dating. She's also like a parent. Yeah. So she was the one who, backing it even farther up, right? So Angie and Gary, right? Gary and Jean had a lot of like on again, off again relationship in their early 20s because they were all in the same friends group, right? They were building their life together already by that point. Jean actually had a different partner who she had two children with. And those children are my siblings. One of them is older than myself. So by the time I was born, Jean was already one of my moms. I already had a brother who was four months older than I was. Mm. And in that way, that's what I mean is like I very much knew who my family was. And so Jean was my mom first. And then when I was nine, married my uncle and became my aunt. So that's why I think like family is funny. Yeah, I know. That's pretty confusing. But (laughs) um, do you have a flow chart? Well, in fact, I do have a flowchart. So I take claim to being one of the people who invented the term polycule. And I say that with so many, you know, verbal quotations because there are a lot of people who want to lay claim to that title. Mm. It's very helpful. It means polyamorous (laughs) molecule. And it's like a family unit. It's so cute. Right? So it's a family unit. Exactly. So we were sitting down. I was about 14, 16 I was doing organic chemistry homework, and my mother, Jean, is a chemical geneticist and a deep scientist. And so I was like, this doesn't really make sense to me. And she sat me down, and we started talking about molecules and the relationships between them and how they interact. And they all have these deep personalities, right? And I looked up, and I was like, oh, so it's kind of like if you have, like, one person with two partners, and sometimes they have an adversarial relationship, and he's just trying to make them get along. And she was like, exactly. And I went, that sounds so poly. And it helped make the homework make sense. Right. And then I started using it in my community. And again, this is this is mid-90s, 2000s Seattle, very rife for poly community. 
and from there it spread. Then also, I did something that was in retrospect a very smart idea. I told Dan Savage about it, and oh, he published it. Awesome. Yeah, you know. I was being interviewed by Dan for an event called Polycamp Northwest, a polyamorous family camping event that we had started. So he wanted this youthful perspective and we were talking about it i brought up the term polycule he asked me what that meant i told him the story i just told you and he published it and sort of after that point is when i started seeing it online a lot more often and had people coming to me asking me do you mind if i buy polycule.com you know i don't want to step on your toes oh yeah so it was like when i say that it's not me standing on my own little hill i went up and went oh i i think something is happening with this term so how many people were living at your house or did that change throughout the years and then you moved around how did that work my polycule i primarily lived with angie my biological mom angie and gary didn't get married After my adolescence, they weren't really pair bonded anymore. They're still definitely life partners. They're two peas in a pod, but they both have spouses now. So I stayed with Angie a lot. And then sometimes Gary would be living with us. And then sometimes Jean and Jim would be living with us. My family's not affluent. And so we were also figuring out poly when you're not rich. So sometimes it was a need that we were living in the same place. And at other times, we somebody would have a house and then... Phoebe, my third mom, my other mom, would be living like right down the way or across the hall of the apartment building. So we always made sure to stay close to each other, even if we weren't living in the physiological same space. And then at other times, we would have sleepovers, you know, we would have camping events. We would go camping also with my bio family. And do you think it made parenting easier for your mother to have an extended network of parents? Absolutely, I do. Some days it did feel like I was living with like a single mom because it would just be her and I and she would go to work. She was working 40 hours a week and I would come home from school and we had our routine together too, but she always knew there was somebody to call on. There was always an event with our tribe that was upcoming. There was a support network. We would go to Pagan Church. We had a lot of different outlets. A lot of community. A lot of community. Well, she and her, when I was talking about titles for the book, she said, you know, oh, it takes a village. And I went, Mom, I think Hillary Clinton already titled hers that, right. <laughs> you know, but that's her favorite phrase. Well, it's true. And it's yeah. such a useful one when you're talking about polyamory and families, because I think one of the tragedies, especially with feminism and trying to do it all for this single woman mm-hmm. But having a family and trying to do it all and doing it in the woman's role is just so challenging and you really do need help. Absolutely. One of the things I love about having three women of distinguished making their own way in their own fashion, all dealing with chronic illness throughout my life, I got the matriarch archetype fed to me very early. And so when I looked at like femininity and how our society treats strong femininity, I didn't understand. Femininity is not weak. There's no room for it to be weak. That's obviously a fallacy. Like I kind of got to surpass in a lot of ways, a lot of the societal stigmas that others got so that I can now help, hopefully. Yeah. All the bad brainwashing. Yeah. I mean, not all of it. I've, I've still got my stuff too. The polyamorous concepts and communications that they were doing with each other, they were also applying to our family dynamic. So it was open, honest communication. It was, if you have a problem, come talk to me about it. If you have a question, come talk to me about it. We would set boundaries with each other. A big one that everybody asks about is, how do you have partners over? And it's simple. A parent gets a sleepover just like a kid gets a sleepover. 
and you build boundaries and you learn how to have sleepovers. There were a lot of opportunities for me to sort of bypass some of this like internal shame around communication and identity exploration so that when it came time for me to decide if I was a counterculture weirdo. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next. (laughs) I mean, like, how do you know that you're poly and not just your family is poly? Well, it turns out I have a brain. Sorry, that's my sassy answer. (laughs) Everybody. And you were in puberty, just like everybody else, having feelings and thoughts and trying to figure everything out. I got my hormone monster. It's all good. I had to ask those questions of myself. I had the opportunity to know that polyamory was an option, to know that sex positivity was a valid way to be, knowing that polytheism is not wrong and I'm not a heathen for any of those intersections. That, I think, is a huge blessing. (laughs) <laughs> Monica's like, yes. Oh, my God. I was a, yes. I was a Mormon, so oh. I get it. I mean, I wasn't raised Mormon, but my family is very Christian. And, yeah. So. And thank you for, you know, mm-hmm. we've all got our story. And that doesn't mean that I didn't think about it critically. The anecdote I always love to tell is I was watching Jerry Maguire for the first time, and Tom Cruise is sobbing and soaked and trying to get somebody else to complete him from this very desperate fashion. That whole desperate codependent thing, I knew. I was like nine, and I'm like, I never. That does not seem good. No, no, I don't want a wet Tom Cruise telling me he loves me. Ah! I was a really smart nine year old, you know? (laughs) I don't know that I would have been able to resist a really wet Tom because I had a crush on Tom Cruise when I was a kid. But that's right. We had different Tom Cruises, though. I'm a. I bet we did. Yeah, Yeah. anyway. So (laughs) just understanding that, like, in that moment, I knew I was going to want to share abundant love. And not seek desperate love. Right. Those sorts of things. And codependency. And codependency. Like those things have been key in me figuring out my own relationship structures. I've never been in a monogamous relationship. How do you know that you don't like it? Honestly, I think I'd be really shitty at it. Well, you're good at keeping your other agreements though, aren't you? I very much am, but I am also a very proud and distractible slut. And I would not want to hurt a partner. And I, I don't have any interest in changing that right now, which I don't think serves monogamy very well. No, so, that's true. You, you have know, to want to. Yeah, I just I look at it and I'm like, well, I mean, but then oh, but making out with my friends is so very important. To that me. doesn't have to be against the rules <laughs> with monogamy. I mean, monogamy means you're only sleeping with one person. Oh. I mean, you could totally have crazy rules. I hear that's really nice for some people, and I fully support them in that. Right, right, right. You know, and like, again, never to say, I have one uncle who looked at me and said, don't give up on monogamy. And I went, I I won't, I promise, you know. (laughs) It's not like a mountain to climb or anything. Exactly. Also, I'm going to ask every single other monogamous person who grew up from a monogamous family how they know that Polly's not right for them. And I think that it's really important that people think about that and answer that question for themselves. And it might change throughout your lifetime as your life changes. Yeah. You know, what you want and blah, blah, blah. Who's available to you? I mean, especially when you live in a place like Seattle or San Francisco where everyone's poly, (laughs) it's going to be much easier to be poly and just have agreements rather than trying to be pair bonded monogamous. Yeah, entirely. So let's talk about gender. You chose a unique gender outside of the box of what we think of the binary. Why did you make that choice? So that discovery came to me. I also had the wonderful opportunity to go to an LGBT summer camp as a youth and be surrounded by queers in the woods for weeks. It's called Camp Ten Trees. It's in the Pacific Northwest. You can check them out online. At Camp Ten Trees, I got a lot of exposure to different ideas of gender and also got a pretty hefty amount of awareness about 
intersection and the world. So I simultaneously felt a lot of multiplicitous feeling in myself that I couldn't define as feminine by all. So a multitude of feelings. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, multitude of feelings. Right. And all the different directions of feeling. Yes, absolutely. It was. I'm masculine. I'm feminine. I'm not. I'm neutral. Exactly. Exactly. And also, like, I feel great about that. I feel confused about that. I feel sad about that. There was all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Because, you know, the world around you is all like, oh, transgender. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And I knew I was in a love bubble. Like, I was at summer camp, right? And I was, so I was exploring all the things. A queer love bubble. Oh, it's like rainbow. It's a, yeah. There's a lake. We call it Rainbow Lake. And each camp area is a color. It's a whole thing. (laughs) So I decided that I was going to devoid myself from gender for a year to try and see what was up from camp to camp. And it was really funny because through that, I found out that, like, it wasn't that I wanted to get rid of gender. I wanted to explore all the gender, right? And so throughout the next... All the different genders. All the different genders. I identify as very gender full, very gender fluid. I went back to camp the next year and I really felt like myself. At the time, there were a lot of different terms for what we now call non-binary. I started doing that work. And one of the things that is astonishing and amazing to me now, I was 17 at the time, I'm now 28, that it's gotten to the point where now people actively ask me what my pronoun is. People are are correcting each other in front of me whom I've never met based on one introduction. I am feeling queer generations moving forward and I'm seeing this movement. feeling seen. And feeling seen. It's just been like this wonderful thing to be a part of. Wonderful and really harrowing thing to be a part of, but actually that I'm seeing it gain visibility and movement has been incredible. Harrowing in what way? Misunderstanding, misjudgment, people actively fighting grammar to your face instead of using common courtesy. (laughs) Like you're like, I said they, will you please use they? And then they're like, no, you're a she. Yeah, entirely. A cisgendered white male friend of mine the other day said, yeah, it's just fucking common courtesy. Why wouldn't I? And it was a really simple sentiment the importance of like that intersection and that sentiment really hit me. It's been made to be such a big fight in my head. I've spurned a lot of emotional energy on it when I'm simply asking for a piece of common courtesy in an ever evolving language. And I understand that there are some traditional courtesies that we're trying to hold on to for politeness and kindness. But if I'm telling you that's not polite and kind for me, then you know? Why wouldn't you at least try to change? Try? Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, yes, it's hard and it's awkward and you're going to forget sometimes and you're yeah. going to introduce oh. someone as a she when they're there and they. Yeah. But still, you have to come back and shake it off and be yeah. like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just habituated to the mm-hmm. two binary system thing. So can I talk a little bit about your presentation and what in what ways you express your masculinity or experience your masculinity? Yes, please. Great. Okay, so she's got, I mean, they, oh, why? Okay, they, they have beautiful, long red hair, and it has streaks of silver in it. It's so interesting looking. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like you're wearing a little bit of makeup right now, Mm -hmm. and you're sparkly. Some some glitter is on there. Okay. Yeah, and you have a nose ring. I do have a nose ring. Do you want to tell me about anything else that you're doing (laughs) as a gender expression or your presentation? I am also wearing a kilt right now. Okay, she's... 
they are uh-huh. wearing a kilt. I am wearing a kilt. I am wearing what I like to call my stagehand chic. So it's black. It's tight. It's efficient. I've got my my Doc Martens in oxblood red right over there. Were you being a stagehand earlier today? No, but it's really cold out. And this is how I know to dress in the cold because I do do stagehand work. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, I'm going to cross the bridge. It's been raining. I'm taking Bart. I'm going to like, I'm going to gear up, you know, I'm going to armor up. Well, Oakland. Oakland is lovely. It's it's the oh, microclimates it's in spring can be exciting. <laughs> Especially in San Francisco. It can be so cold. It can. It definitely can. You brought up my hair, though. It's like rainbow pony hair. <laughs> Beautifully red, like fire red. Yeah. And then has these little streaks of silver, uh-huh. which are so sparkly. It's they really are. fun. They're very, they're uh, fairy tinsels that make my hair sparkly which I love and I can do for anybody if you get to the Bay Area but <laughs> <laughs> I think I, there I is the Bay, but I, they're yeah they're, I, they're so very long it's Thank really pretty you. but one of the things about my hair in specific that I love to talk about with gender presentation and how exactly. people perceive mm-hmm. right I think that's why yeah. it's so hard for people like me to mm. remember that you're a, a they because you're so pretty and so feminine mm. which I don't know how you're masculine and I'm masculine in my own way it's hard to make change. And so even though I was like thinking about testosterone and like want to build more muscle and lots of things, I'm stuck mm. in a way, not in a bad way. Okay. But like, yeah. I think habitually, ooh, it would be so hard for me to think of myself as he or they, I think. Well, and I think that's one of the key pieces. I remember I was a teenager looking at a transmasculine friend who was one of the first people that we really got to have these super vulnerable conversations together. And I asked him, don't you miss your femininity? And he looked at me and he said- It's still there. He he looked at me and he said, it was never mine. Oh, really? Yeah. Transmasculine. He knew- Oh, so he knew, even like, the, when he was outwardly trying to pretend like being a woman. Or trying it, to feel it, you know, because right, our society says, like, do this, you are this. And then if you're not that, then, then who are like, you? Ah. What are you doing? And right. so, yeah, I asked him, do you miss it? And he goes, it wasn't mine. Right. And so in that way, I feel my masculinity is mine and my femininity is mine and my clown is mine and my neutrality is mine. And I'm also, I have a high active imagination. So like sometimes I'm also a fairy and that's fine. (laughs) What is a fairy? (laughs) Sparkles. Well, there's that radical fairy group. Also And then there's the fairy literature. I'm reading a fairy book right now. It's very fairy-ish. Wonderful. Yeah. These are all different attributes. Gender is a bundle of attributes. And we tried to bifurcate our society and say that everything falls on one side or the other of this arbitrary line. And it doesn't. And if you're not that, you're doing it wrong. Right. There's something wrong with you. Right. And so I'm figuring out what are the attributes that I embody well? What are the ones that I am learning from that I can learn from? Honestly, the gender revolution is going to smash the patriarchy. I'm ready. Right. Which is also partially why the patriarchy doesn't like it very much. And why it's incredibly important to get behind the gender revolution. If you're scared of multiple cisgender, gender, just think of how, how people are playing, how you could play, that it doesn't have to be hard. That gender doesn't have to be hard and harrowing. Yes, we all have trauma from it. Yes, it's deeply important that there's visibility and equitability and equality. And me putting on a kilt and putting sparkles in my hair and shaving the sides of my head and walking around with makeup on is an act of revolution because it starts conversations and it gets people to open their minds a little bit and humanize these concepts. Inside of us, we are both masculine and feminine. It's just that 
we are often told because we have a sex that we have to have some certain kind of expression. And I think it's so damaging that there's some ways, you know, that I'm so much more masculine than I'm supposed to be. You know, I was a tomboy when I was a kid and blah, blah, blah. And all these beliefs about like gender and how you're supposed to be a good girl that I'm not. In the future where you can be as masculine as you need to be situationally that works for you, you don't have to oppress yourself. Yes, to all of that. It's kind of like when you were saying that you can be critical and fully involved in your monogamy. You can be critical and fully involved with your gender no matter what it looks like. You can hold that masculinity, own that power within yourself, and also express feminine, be feminine. I apparently just need a lot of gender validation and performative gender expression to get through my days. Let me tell you, being a genderqueer costumer means you literally need one of everything. Why? Well, because you never know what the opportunity is. And like, do I need to dress up in a suit or in a gown? And yes, you do. And And maybe both at the same time sometimes. You need one of everything at minimum. (laughs) (laughs) That's so fun. I mean, it's funny because, you know, I think about the ways that I express who I am just authentically is, you know, I don't wear makeup unless it's like a super special occasion Mm -hmm. and I'm having my photo taken. I want to have as much like care and getting ready in the morning as a guy I want to wear comfortable shoes mm-hmm. I want to not have to fuck around with my hair mm-hmm. yeah. you know yeah. I just want to be like awake and wearing clothes yeah. and then out the door with totally. a healthy breakfast totally that is one of the reasons that I keep my hair long it's also cut in one length I use good shampoo and conditioner on it and that is a very masculine for me simplistic efficient forthright valuable thing that I can do for my body. My hair, my long, beautiful, luscious red hair with its shaved sides is an incredibly masculine presentation for me. And it also helps me connect to my culture. I'm Scandinavian. And so to have Viking guy hair is (laughs) very appealing to me. And yet it's such a masculine identifier for myself that everybody uses to clock me as feminine an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Yeah. So how does that feel to you when people misgender you on something that you really value as masculine? Mm, Depends on the day. But in general, it's this sense of like, I guess you really just don't get it. If it's in a conversation, if it's with somebody I'm with conversing with, on the street, I understand we're all getting through our days. We're going through the motions. You are just associating to try and keep yourself safe. I understand. But if we're in conversation, it's kind of like, wow, really? Are you not listening? Do you not care? I care. I know. It's just that I'm going to have to keep trying. And so, you know. People can tell. Like, if you're being sincere, people can tell. If you're working on it, people can tell. You know, like, be genuine. Actually care. That's a really good start. And then (laughs) practice and work on it. Don't just, like, pretend that you care and then not. You don't get the cookie if you ask for the cookie. I have to decide if you get the cookie or not. (laughs) Cookies have to be consensual <laughs> for both people yes. or all of them, depending consensual on who's cookie. there. Yes. Talk to me about, I imagine at some point you graduate and you move into the world yeah. as your own adult. What were the first steps for you? Well, fortunately, I also laid those out in the book. This Heart Holds Many is a memoir of both childhood and coming of age. It helps answer the question, not only what was it like, but how do you know that this is right for you? Where did you find your own sense of self? For me, it came through a lot of strife. I was living out of my car. I did not have a lot of money. I wanted to be a famous sex educator. 
like you do. Be- I know, <laughs> I do. I really know that intimately. You're like, oh, this is resonating. And, uh, you know, you do not make a lot of money. As we discussed earlier, a lot of people think, oh, you are talking to me about sex. So that must mean that I get to flirt with you and I'm not taking you seriously. And I'm sure they don't pay you. <laughs> as much as you're worth you know what i mean it's just so mm. i was in my early 20s and i'm like i come from a family of this i can totally do this and the world was a little rough i've definitely stuck to the west coast my west coast weirdos i'm discovering the little pockets of awesome weirdness in other places austin austin's great shout out to new england there's some really cool spots like denver and chicago mm-hmm. we're, we're a little bit everywhere I actually went to hawaii on a vacation that I ended up staying there for about a month, finding it's myself. So magical. It is. I'm. I'm like. I. You know. I went to. I don't want to be the girl who went to Hawaii and found myself. But you know, like it. That is what happened. And I found that. And you were a girl then. That's why you said that. No, I slip up sometimes. <gasps> oh my God, you do. <gasps> we're not all perfect. Oh, thank God. Well, I mean, I'm certainly not. <laughs> Second generation. Well, there's, <laughs> you. Our, there's a little bit of like how my parents see me. Sure. You know what I mean? Oh, because they still sometimes slip up and see oh, you like absolutely. a girl. Because you were their little girl exactly. at one point. Yeah. And ah. this particular vacation was with my father. Mm. So okay. dad and I go to go to Hawaii. Um, I end up staying because I'm like finding myself. I realized. And also like, this is amazing. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Basically discovered that I knew what I wanted, but I was really scared to go and reach it. I wanted to move to San Francisco. And this was at the time, this was within like the first two years of the bubble of San Francisco. And what the year cost. was that? This was 2015. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of financial and, and focus pressure on that city. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I didn't go back to Seattle. And rents are like insane. Oh, yeah. You can only get a one bedroom for like $3,000. Yeah. You know, just like a couple of your firstborns. It'll be fine. I did it. I had two suitcases. I had a couple hundred dollars. And I went from Hawaii to San Francisco. And how did you do it? Like, how did you make it work? Because I know you have to hustle you do. in the city. There was a lot of hustling. There was a lot of couch surfing. There was a lot of sex positive community mm-hmm. and kink community. And even though I didn't grow up here, I knew how to find that community. My dad's 30 year long distance relationship lives here in the Bay. So I could call on her and auntie and say, where do I start? I reached and I actually built community. I've been connecting with local partner dancers and building sex positive community. Like swing dancers? Yeah, oh. swing and blues. Which kind of? Uh, specifically blues and there's a partner style called fusion mm-hmm. which fuses together different ballroom styles to modern music. Mm. So I've been finding a lot of home and community there. It's interesting yeah. how gendered partner dancing is so polyamorous and but then you can switch the roles like I'm a lead, I'm a follow, you know what I mean? Oh absolutely. Well I found that specifically poly people you might get male about this. Poly people tend to like blues and kinksters tend to like swing. And I found that that's because the rigidity of swing, commonly Lindy Hop, not as much West Coast swing. But Oh, no, I know. I'm a swing dancer. <laughs> yeah, you, yes. So like, <laughs> so like Lindy Hoppers, there's that rigidity and structure and they thrive in that, you yeah. know. And so that, that kink dynamic and the like, you have to push and mm-hmm. do this like hard thing, but it's really worth it. And like the adrenaline mm-hmm. and all of that. Blues, blues is my, I love blues. Blues is a community dance about connection, about transmuting catharsis living through oppression and it's about celebration and the joyful expression of being alive so blues is a lot about deep heavy intense complex kinds of emotions with people you care a lot about 
sounds very poly to me. Well, and certainly in the moment, because it's all about the connection in the moment. Mm-hmm. And in my Tantra studies, every person that you're connecting with, that you're eye gazing with, is your divine beloved, mm. no matter who they are. Absolutely. We say that you fall in love for three to five minutes on a dance floor. In this moment. Yes, absolutely. I find the threads of the teachings that my parents bestowed on me in my daily life. And I'm, I'm building community with people who are honest and open communicators and interested in the world. And I feel very blessed from what I was taught and it doesn't really matter if I'm choosing a poly life or not, those lessons are helping me navigate this world in a way that I think in some ways gives me a little bit of a communicative leg up on others. And that's why I like to help. <laughs> so what's next for you? I know you have the book coming out and you're probably working on promoting it socks right off. <laughs> what do you see as the next step for you as a sex educator? Very next step is tour. If there are folks out there who want me to come to their city, please reach out. Crowdfunding is coming out very soon. So that is my next big focus for the year is really well and truly getting this book into the hands of the people that need it. And then after that, I'm working on a course that's actually well tied into the book. I'm not going to talk about what it is yet, but it'll be another step, another first, having something that people can download and use in their daily lives. So one step at a time. I realized I don't have to be the most famous sex educator ever at the, by the time I'm 35, <laughs> but um, I'm hoping to consistently produce things to the conversation that are of value. You said crowdfunding. Yes. Tell me about your crowdfunding. Thank you so much. There is a go fund me it is this heart holds many find this heart holds many on amazon and amazon pre-sales are super helpful if amazon thinks i'm important the world thinks i'm important it, the book will go far and then for me personally i'm actually doing a book launch here in the bay area march 22nd at little boxes theater so if you're in the bay and would like to come say hi that would be a great place to connect with me more information about the tour coming up check all my socials this heart holds many my life as the non-binary millennial child (laughs) as the non-binary millennial child of a polyamorous family and you use the pronoun they your name is co-creation and people can find your work at co-creation.com your twitter is at co-create and polycule what else are you going to call a family unit that's poly thank you so much monica this has been a rambling beautiful adventure and i really appreciate you having me on your show You can subscribe to Sexploration with Monica on iTunes and have new episodes delivered automatically or download free podcasts at sexplorationwithmonica.com.